Welcome to Filling in the Gaps. I am Justin. And I'm Darren. And today we are going to be talking about a movie called Upstream Color. Before we begin, what do you think about Upstream Color? Would you recommend it? I would. I recommended it to you, I think. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend it to anyone that likes, I don't know, those kind of movies that are weird. And if you've seen Primer, it's by the same director. Um, So if you like movies that don't have a lot of dialogue and try and show a story more through visuals than actual words, then this is a decent movie. I think that's a pretty good way to describe it. Personally, I find Upstream Color to be very, very slow. So I do recommend it. I think people who like shows like Twilight Zone or Black Mirror, this is probably a good fit. People like very visually interesting movies, uh, for example, like uh, Kubrick's 2001. I mean, it's not on that level, clearly, but it is that kind of style. There's a lot of slow bits where it's more about the art of the filmmaking, I think, than story. Yeah. Which, for me, is not as good. I'm very much a narrative person. I want the narrative to move. And there are moments where the narrative is really there in this one. But you have to sit through a lot to get to it. Personally, I feel like this could have been about half as long as it really is. Probably is when you edit out all the silence (laughs) and all the bits you don't need. In fact, honestly, I watched the movie the first time at about uh, 1.3 times for the most part. And the second time preparing for this, I knew when something important was coming up, I would slow it down. But otherwise, I was more like 1.7, 1.8. I do like the movie. I think there's a lot of good going on here. But I feel like there's a lot of extra that I didn't need that doesn't really work for me. At the same time, if I know someone and I know what kind of movies they like and that they might overall appreciate the story of this one, I would recommend it. But again, with the caveat that it is slow. So beware of that. If you're going to listen to this episode, it's not going to make much sense to listen to it without having watched the movie. This is definitely another one of those where to talk about it at all is really going to be a lot of uh, spoilers. I mean, what, what would you say the non-spoiler version would be then? Like, what's, what's it really about? <laughs> There's no way that I could do it without being vague, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was even thinking, like, uh, you can't mention that. Uh, it's just, I mean, essentially, it's a story about two people finding each other, but that's so vague. Yes. <laughs> ah, okay, well, actually, I like that. So, yeah, our vague description for you that will be spoiler-free, two people find each other that have a lot in common, and they grow together which sounds like so many other movies and is, but in this case, it's very unique. What they've gone through is very unique. So if that makes you at all curious, I would definitely recommend, but beware, it is a bit slow. All right. Okay. We ready? Yep. All right. Spoiler section. (laughs) So, upstream color. I wasn't joking when I said that I was watching it in fast forward. I mean, didn't they sound like chipmunks on your thing? Honestly, I didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) I, if I didn't understand what they were saying, then I, I would rewind it a bit and then play it at normal speed. The first time I really needed that. The second time, even, even some of the dialogue bits are a bit slow and I get what they're saying long before the scene is finished. What I don't get is a lot of what's going on at the beginning of the movie and kind of how this cycle began or why it's still going or how it's actually working. I have some theories, but this is a movie where I think there are a lot of things that are left purposely ambiguous. 
and I don't mind so much. I don't really need to know the origin of how this cycle got started, of this kind of criminal cycle, how it got started or why it got started. I'm curious, but I don't need it. I don't need, please don't make an origin story for this movie. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> but there are some things that do make me very curious, and I'm not quite sure where they're going with it. Uh, let's start with the opening. Mm -hmm. So we open looking at garbage, which is very bold. <laughs> we see paper chains in the garbage bag and then a man taking them to the dumpster. Then there are some boys on bikes. Yeah. Uh, one boy talks to the guy. Uh, then the man goes to a plant nursery. He finds some plants with kind of blue crystals that he scratches off using a knife. They're labeled uh, E plus P exotics, which is important later. Uh, he basically destroys those plants to get at kind of the maggots or the worms uh, that are living in the soil around these plants and only the live ones. He has a clearly marked system of happy, happy face. face and sad <laughs> yeah. face, like they're dead face or something. Yeah. Uh, then we see the boys again. Uh, well, actually, there's a, a third boy at this point, I think. Uh, one gives a drink to another and they do some motions, but they're doing the motions kind of in... Tandem, I guess, right there. One's controlling the other one, kind of thing. That's what I took from it. At this point, though, the first time, I had no idea what was going on. And that opening sequence makes a lot of sense to me now. But, yeah, when I was first watching it, I was really just like, what? What is going on here? This is odd. Why are they, why are they drowning these worms in root beer? So let's just back up to the paper chains, because those are important from later on. Yeah. Um, well, that's, they, they, everything... About well, this opening is kind of important yeah. later on. So I mean, but that's the that's the thief, yeah. Yes, P putting him into the garbage, which kind of suggests he's just finished a job. Yes, yeah, and we're we're being essentially given foreshadowing for what is going to be happening yeah. later. But as to who that is, I've got no idea who it could be. It might be Jeff. I don't think that it could be Jeff. Why not? Because I'm pretty sure that we see it's the guy who does all the talking and ordering her around later. No, I mean, sorry, edit that. It could be Jeff. He's just he's just made Jeff do all the bad <laughs> trades. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. I thought you were trying to say that it was Jeff. No, 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 no. In it's, the car, it's, it's quite, like, it's, it's, I know it's definitely not Jeff. It's quite clearly not Jeff. You know, I'd like to know, at least have a clue about some of these things, like who was it, but I guess... That ambiguity is put in there on purpose. It could be anyone. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to go with Jeff, though. That he's just he's just finished up with getting the, the broker fired, basically. All right. But, like, yeah, exactly. How did this guy work this out? How did the thief work out? Because he's clearly experimenting with the kids, getting them to... He's using them to find the effects of the the worms and then he refines that process and until he can basically mind control people. I know you're, you're anxious to get to your theories, but if we could kind of push through the actual movie, it won't be long because there's not that much story. So let's go back to the boys. So here's a problem that I have that I, I get confused by both times I've watched this movie. The first time when, as you say, you think that the one boy is controlling the other, which is... Fine. However, when he is doing it, they are essentially doing the same motions. When he gives a different boy the drink, they do the same motions, but now it's kind of in mirror with each other. They're kind of high-fiving each other. 
And this was a bit confusing to me. How does this work? Is the kid this good that he can do it that way? Like either way he can do it? This is also not the way the thief controls them. He controls them totally verbally. So are we to believe that it works differently for different people? Yeah, this is a problem. This is a problem that I had with it as well is, okay, so what I think is happening is the first one, the first kid is just being controlled kind of very simply circles with hands, turning your hands over, whatever. The second one is almost like they're doing Kung Fu with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the one kid knows karate the other kid doesn't because he's not mimicking he's blocking and he's defending himself against this guy that's basically trying to attack him so it's almost like he's reading his mind to know kung fu to block the attack so he's gone one level up he's in someone else's head taking that information and using it for himself this doesn't help the fact that they both drink a liquid how do we decide who gets control that's my huge problem is how does that work? I don't And we don't, we'll, we'll never know that. And that's, that's something that does annoy me with this movie is there's no mechanic to it. It doesn't make any sense. I, I mean, worms controlling people doesn't make sense, but I can go with that. But how does one person dominate the other? <laughs> so yeah, so how, how does one, how does one person dominate the other one? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't think that's ever addressed or answered in the movie. I don't think so either. And that is one of the problems that I have with the story and how it works. When you mess with the mechanics of your, let's say, sci-fi rules, then it makes me question everything, which is very interesting because Primer seems so solid. Do you know which one came first? I, I think look. Primer came first. Okay. Primer came first, and then he was doing uh, a short so a little bit later, like maybe the next scene in the movie that we'll talk about where she's doing the animation, that animated robot thing that she's working on. It's like on. A, a box on paper legs, essentially. Yeah, yeah. That was from a movie that he was making in between this one and Primer. Uh, but, but I, I wondered because that looked way too good of quality just to be thrown in there. <laughs> in this kind of, what I would say is... Fairly low-budget movie. I mean, that's fair to say, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly how much it was, but it wasn't very high. But yeah, so basically he had this footage for a movie that he wanted to do. I can't remember the name of it now, but cut that out so I don't look stupid. But yeah, so basically he didn't get funding for that movie, and then he made Upstream Color instead. All right. There's a man running in a distance race, and then we see a woman running a distance race, and they're both important. Yeah. We don't know that, except then we start to follow the woman and this is chris in this movie i think we probably should have said this earlier but i'll say it now before we go further there are only i believe two named characters in the entire movie chris and jeff and that is chris uh k-r-i-s that is the female protagonist of our movie everyone else is given a title which is fine I don't think we always need to randomly have names for characters that never speak or that we don't speak to. But it is interesting in a way to say that these are the only two characters that really matter in this movie. They're the only two that are worthy of getting names. But as you say, she's basically having a rough time. Somebody's messed up a shot. She's told to hire a new crew. And basically we're watching her go through that. There's probably some sort of symbolism that's going on here or some sort of message that's going on here. But from a narrative standpoint, it's just kind of 
dragging me down. I'm not sure what we're going for here. So I'm much more interested when we finally get back to the thief as he's putting kind of maggots inside pill cases and very kind of feebly trying to sell them. Pass them off as drugs yeah, yeah. to people in the street. It seems to me that if he's already done this multiple times, he should have a fair amount of money. And he could probably put the maggots inside real drugs somehow. <laughs> or get someone else to do the dealing, essentially. So that that will come up later in my kind of summary theory. But he finally... I mean, we see a taser, so essentially he... He knocks her out, basically. Knocks Chris out, drags her out into the street, and then flushes a maggot into her throat, and then she's immediately controlled by it. And so he gets her to drive to her house, where he starts to go through her things. We see him going through a checkbook, and she is standing there because it was raining. She is still wet. She's just standing in place on this tile, not moving, with, like, torn stockings. It clues you in that she's not in the right place in her head. And when he comes out, he informs her that she can now move from the tile. She can leave the tile. The floor will now support her weight. And now she moves from the one tiny square in which she had been kind of placed. Uh, she asks about food, and she's told that it's poisoned and told to make a pitcher of ice water. This seems a bit extreme because he's basically going to have her living for days on ice water. And I don't quite understand why. Could he not go get food at this point? Could he not order in food at this point? It just seems a bit excessive. I think the point of that is, um, at least this is what I took away from it, was she can drink and you need to drink to survive. You're going to die if you mm. don't drink. I think food is the trigger for her to snap out of it kind of thing. So it's like once it, your metabolism starts, I, I mean, again, it's mumbo jumbo kind of I'm making my own rules up. But that's what I took from it is like once you start to feed yourself actual food, nutrition, then the worm starts to burrow and um, like go move to other parts of your body. That does make sense. I'll give you that one. I think that that makes more sense than any other reason I was coming up with because I was coming up with really stupid reasons like financially, this is a much better net profit, you know, like because we're not spending like, money on food. Like he wants to eat her food and she can't eat, you can't eat the food. That's, that's for me. Yeah. He can't order a pizza or something. He tells her some other things as well. And this to me is one of the most interesting parts of the movie is the way he controls her verbally. And what he says, he tells her that his head is made of the same material as the sun. And you can see this bright light appear in her face and she looks away as though she truly believes that his head is a sun. Which I guess would help prevent her from identifying him. Yeah, Because even in her brain later, if she did somehow remember, she would remember it looking like the sun. She is told constantly that the water is special. The best thing she's ever tasted. It revives all her energy, renews her, and also that there is a magic wall that prevents her from feeling hunger and fatigue. And so thus she is put into this cycle. And she's told like, she's told the next drink must be earned. And we see her arranging, I thought they were poker chips, but I guess they're more like checkers. Yeah. So they're, they're all- Very big 
Yeah, they are very big, big. big pieces. Yeah, uh, they're red and white pieces. Uh, then she's copying some pages of Walden. Uh, this is the more kind of introductory section of Walden, and I don't think that anything they reference really goes beyond that. Uh, yeah, so because she ends up copying the whole book, doesn't she? Pretty much. I think we're led to believe that. I'm not sure that it really goes that far. I'm not sure if there's a limit to how many days you can go through this. I mean, living on ice water, right? <clears throat> well, that's the thing. So it's like, I mean, I'm guessing she, you can go, uh, what is it, whatever, like three or four weeks without food. Without, but without sleep, though. She's roughly on page 60 to 62 at this point. And I think it would be roughly about 200 pages, I think. So it's not impossible that this would have happened, but I I don't know. I don't think they make any references beyond... I think this is about as much as we get... Because when they're doing the swimming pool bit later, that's the beginning. Okay. So Walden, I think, is kind of an interesting choice because Walden is talking about how somebody lived essentially off the grid before that was really a thing, how he had to deal with the fact that he was basically living a counterculture life, trying to simplify his life, find what was truly important. And he thought he was being so different but kind of by the end, he realizes he is going through a pattern. Even though he is totally off the grid, he kind of creates a grid of his own where the path he takes to get water creates a kind of path that you can physically see from months of use. I think that this plays symbolically. I think it also plays a little bit even narratively into this. So I think that they that was chosen very much on purpose. Sounds a lot like the sampler as well. It is a bit like the sampler, but then I think it also becomes like Chris's life later on. And probably Jeff, because we assume, I think, I assume they end up together. Well, I think as well, I think the the, the one thing that is important is, uh, just like the paper chains, I believe that all the characters are, well, connected in some way. Obviously they are. Apart from the thief, though, he's the kind of wild card to this uh, for some reason. I'm sure i kind of think that he must be connected in some way or else the cycle is broken but i, I think we can get to that yeah that, that, that's definitely going to be later as she's doing this though the thief is sleeping yeah <laughs> and every time she finishes a, a paper link in the chain she earns a drink and you see her so relieved that she finally earns a drink and then she starts again then the thief comes in and says the water's not appealing anymore chris is told her mother has been abducted and she needs money quickly and this is how he starts to get all her financial information. Finds out about her special coins, what's the equity on your house, and he lays out clothes for her, he gets her to file equity, she comes back to the car, repeats word for word everything that happened in the bank, and this happens a couple times. We later see Chris knitting a scarf, she's playing checkers alone, making more paper chains, and drinking more water. So, I mean, basically, he's keeping her awake. That's 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 now an established rule for that. And I like that. Like, So, no food, no sleep. Those seem to be the two things that are the trigger to exiting this mind control state. She's also, at one point, laughing maniacally at a painting while she's eating, essentially, more ice Cereal. <laughs> yeah. and, and the thief is inspecting the paintings. So, he is looking for it anyway to basically steal from her. She's told that the wall has crumbled, so Chris starts eating like a maniac because she hasn't eaten for days, passes out in her bed, like covered in food, and the thief cleans up and removes any of the paper chains, removes Walden, and 
I guess, evidence of himself being there, I would assume. But there are other things that he doesn't clean up, which I didn't quite understand. The checker set was left out. That must be hers. Hmm. But it seems like there were a number of things that were out of place that he didn't bother to put back into place. So when she comes back more cognizant later, I'm not sure why he did that, given that it clued her in that something was wrong. She nearly calls 911, mm. but doesn't. So I guess he's good. He knows what he's doing. He's obviously done, he's done it before. Yep. So mm. Chris wakes up. She notices the worm in her body, which is a bit of a creepy scene, and we see it burrowing. She tries to cut it out. That was... Uh, even when I watched this again recently, I was like... There's really no need to stab yourself so hard. <laughs> she nearly buries that knife up to the hilt. <laughs> um, it's like she's stabbing a watermelon. This makes me think that she is not completely in her right senses. She's still under the influence like of Like some the kind one. of side effects, maybe, kind of. Because she doesn't call a hospital. She no. doesn't call 911. She doesn't even call a friend and say, I think I'm going crazy. She simply tries to cut it out of herself. And this is where we finally see the sampler man, the man in the sweater. He's driving kind of like a big van or truck. And he has all these speakers and some medical equipment. And essentially, he puts the speakers out. They release this thrumming sound over and over again, which seems to somehow call to Chris. And she comes. I'm not quite sure how this works because that seems like it would be very, very far away. They're not in town when he does that. Yeah, I don't know how that part... I mean... If we were to fill in the gaps, I would say the thief might have imprinted some sort of instructions. Or the worm is extra sensitive. It's the worm It's the worm that's bringing her there. So maybe it's the worm that's super sensitive to the, the sounds. It is, but even still, how far away? It's definitely the worm because they have regular earthworms coming out of the ground due to the sound. I, well, so I, mean, I think they're, they're definitely trying to give you that impression. Cause that, well, I mean, that's, that's how you catch worms, isn't it? You... Um, so that sound is, yeah, it's pulling the earthworms out of the ground. But she comes there, but this is a really important point because there's two ways that you can look at this. One, this is a hell of a coincidence that he just happened to be doing this and she happened to be wandering by. Or my theory, which is not in the movie at all, but the sampler and the thief know each other and the sampler and the thief have an arrangement. Oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise... How would you know? Because mm-hmm. um, the sampler basically has all of the... Well, not we don't know how many of them are the victims of the thief directly, or if there are multiple thieves, but it's not his first time doing this, for sure. Right. So here we see a transfer of the worm, kind of medically, oddly, weirdly, and the worm is massive. Yes. <laughs> Going from Chris into the pig, the pig is tagged and recorded in a logbook, and then Chris walks dazed... Uh, into the house past other still figures. But this is not her house. And I think that there are other people standing there, right? I'm a bit... I've got two minds about this part as well. Like, mm-hmm. is it? Are we actually seeing what, what is there? Or is this some of the kind of imagery giving us the idea that all these other people in some way are part of this place? Yeah, that's why... That's, that's my go-to for... Like, after analyzing the movie. But when, I, when I first saw this, I thought the, the sampler was a good guy. And I thought he was rescuing her. And this was some kind of um, rehabilitation place where other people had come through. 
and were being treated because they've got this psychic link with the pigs maybe she's just viewing other people's memories maybe she's psychically seeing ghosts of the other pigs mm. um, or they're actually really there and maybe she's a lucky one and she's regained her consciousness again and maybe these guys are just vegetables because they are just basically just standing there looking out a window which is confusing I don't know. Yeah. and there's so many of them it's like it's almost like a it's like a, hosp- uh, a hospice mm. I don't know. I'm confused by that point. Yeah, I am as well. Okay, so Chris wakes in a car off the highway, totally confused, doesn't know where she is. She sees the cuts on her leg. She's in tears. At this point, as I mentioned before, she nearly calls 911. She calls 911, which I'm going to be a bit pedantic here, but that wouldn't happen. The system is set up in the US so that if you dial 911, they will call you back. Oh. In case you didn't get to the third number. I have had this happen before hmm. where I, I accidentally called. I, I put in 9-1 and, oh, crap. And, like, I hang up and then they called me back just to be sure and talk to me for a couple minutes to make sure that everything was fine. I was calm. No, it was just a mistake. And so that is part of the system. So if she actually dialed 9-1, they would have called her back. Now, it is possible that they did and she said, no, everything's fine. I accidentally dialed it because she didn't know what was going on. And that scene got cut or it didn't seem important. But to me, I just keep going, no, that's, that's I didn't not know. I, that I, well, that's, that's not mm-hmm. something that I would have ever known or picked up on because, yeah, I didn't know that. But yeah, that's the thing is, though, is what would she say? Like, hmm. uh, I've not been robbed. No one's, in my, no one's in my house. I'm basically, I'm going crazy. But she could have seen things out of place and thought maybe people would come in and have them come over just in case. But she doesn't. She cleans up. She finds out a lot of terrible things, like her money is gone and that she's essentially fired from her job. She tries to give an excuse of having had the flu and a very high temperature, but to no avail because she walks out with a box in her hand. Essentially, she's fired. She's listening to music kind of an odd music that we're given the impression that she can hear. There's another guy on the train who can hear that. That is Jeff. We're introduced to him kind of a second time in this way, but we see that there's kind of a connection. They start talking and they're kind of at a cafe or something at one point and she's giving her information saying if you ever need signage... (laughs) Call this number. He doesn't want any signage. How many times does he say that? He says it many times. But I think that that's very good. That's a very clear way, I think, of him trying to say without directly saying, I like you. I'm not going to be calling about your signs. I want to know about you. But I think this is also her still dealing with her issues and trying to avoid that. I don't think she really wanted to get involved with anyone at this point. But Jeff's persistence kind of pays off. Where he's saying, you know, the next time they're on the train, you have to answer my calls. I can't keep doing it this way. You have to answer my calls. But I like that whole scene as well, mm-hmm. like, because it shows you, because we know pretty quickly after that, after they meet, that Jeff has also had a similar experience yeah, as, as that, she has. That's where I want to get to. So I, I like this whole kind of sequence. I think this really builds it up. Where Because it's like they're connected um, and we kind of know that, but they don't know that. Yeah. And so they give lots of good clues as to why this is. Chris questions why Jeff takes the train all the time. She says it's only for homeless people and people without licenses. And he said, oh, 
Do you need to see my license? No, no, I don't. But she tries to push him away one last time by showing her medication, which I believe must be some sort of like psychiatric medication uh, to help her out with what she thought was some sort of mental breakdown and what I assume whoever gave her the medicine also yeah. also believed. Uh, and granted, she was gone for possibly four to five days to a week. Just I mean, long enough to be fired, mm-hmm. but not long enough to have a missing persons report filed. So that's where she is, but Jeff's not having it. He's He's very dedicated to them being together, I think. Jeff admits he's divorced, and it's right after this point that we start to see more of their connections. He's talking to someone at a bar and randomly organizing kind of candies, I think, into different colors, which smacks very much of what we saw Chris going through. We see Chris at the same time swimming to the bottom of a pool, grabbing kind of hunks of concrete or something. something, yeah. Yeah. To bring those up. And we see Jeff make a chain of paper using straw wrappers. And he has this massive box of straws, which gives the impression that he does this a lot. This is a weird kind of... Like a kind of coping mechanism almost. Yeah. Yeah. Or like a tick that he can't get over now. It's corrupted him in some way. I mean, I think this is a really important point because this must be really traumatic. They've lost their entire memory of this situation. And what I think these things are, are ways for them. I think they're slowly remembering things by repeating these tasks. It may be pushing the boat out, but that the whole swimming pool thing with the rocks, I think each of those rocks or each of those straws is a fragment of memory, basically. And she's literally fishing those out of the bottom of her mind and putting them up because later on, as they're quoting Walden, he's reading it. She goes down, she picks up a rock, and she finishes the sentence pretty much as she comes out. So it's like, I think those are ways for... They don't know why, but they're onto something, and they're slowly... She, at least, we see her reciting Walden, and so so she's starting to gain back something that she doesn't know that she'd lost in the first place. At this point, we start to see the sampler as he's going around recording sounds. Which is a long part of silence. (laughs) Yeah, this only really becomes important for a couple reasons. One, these sounds are creating the music that is kind of connecting him to Chris and Jeff in some way, or the way that they're kind of connecting themselves back to him, that they're hearing these sounds, but also later when they will start to revisit these locations. I think it's one way, though. I think it's... Well, no, because later on, they. it's almost like the boys at the beginning. They learn, or at least she learns... To control it, I think, because um, they trick him. But yeah, he's like some—I don't know what he is. Like, is, I, I honestly—he could be an alien for all I know. This part is the vaguest part of everything. I think he can walk among the pigs. It's at this point that we see him walking among the pigs and experiencing what is going on with the people that were once connected to these worms. Yeah, I mean, he's either super psychic or he's an alien of some kind. And this is his weird hobby. You know, it's almost like he's the predator. But instead of collecting heads, he collects people's emotions and memories. It's it's really odd. And I like the sampler. I do. I love the whole idea of him, but I just can't piece it together because an alien or a psychic, well, <laughs> they're two very different things. Yeah, and I'm not sure what he's really getting out of it. 
I think what they're trying to say is this is the type of person who really wants bits of everything. That's why he's going around making sounds of everything and recording them and trying to use them to make music in some way. And like that, he's also going around trying to sample these people's lives and get just a taste of what it would be like to be these different people. And maybe that's all that's important to him. At this point, we get a very random mini story between a bearded man and I guess his wife, where it's just a nonstop repetition of him leaving and her being unhappy and constantly saying things like, I love you and I hope today's better. We don't know what's going on here. We can assume, since the sampler is connected, that one of these people, at least one of these people, was affected by the thief and the sampler. And so that's kind of made their relationship very awkward. But I'm not really sure what they were trying to do with the story otherwise, because we are into this moment because the woman is going into an ambulance, correct? Yeah. The husband seems very confused as to if she's taking medication or anything. I think we're following him. I think so too, because the, the sampler, in all of those scenes where he's sampling people's lives, he's always staring directly at that person. He's focused on them like he's homing in on them. He never looks at the woman. He always looks at the man. So I'm, I think you're right. I think the man is the one being sampled at this point. Okay. Yeah. I'm not really sure what we're meant to really glean from this. I think basically it establishes a couple of rules that we get to see later. One is, I think he's going into that person's mind at that point, and he's he's reliving. He the reason that that constant loop is he that's an important point for the sampler. He likes he seems to enjoy other people's misery basically, um, and he like he wants to relive that moment where the wife is trying to deal with her husband. Um, who's been presumably sampled and their marriage is awful, so bad that she ends up trying to commit suicide. And the sampler is just, yeah, reliving that moment. So through that pig, you see him going out into the field. Every time he wants to revisit that person's mind, he just goes out into his field and then he he waves around and he, he can pick up on the energy, whatever, and then he can relive that moment. I think that's all, just to show you that he can go back into their minds at any time he wants. After that point, Chris and Jeff start to make up stories about other people on the train, which I think is kind of interesting because in a way it's kind of what the sampler's doing, except theirs is made up, theirs is fictional. But Chris uses this as a way to manipulate Jeff into kind of talking about why he got his divorce. And essentially then we get his backstory. So he was a drug addict and he did some, was it illegal stuff with the trading? All of his life, as he said, was reset everything money, everything. And he woke up in a motel uh, after his finances were essentially wiped out. No surprise, because they have so heavily told us that he has had this done as well. Personally, I kind of would have liked to have found out much later that he was connected, or it be not quite so obvious so that it could be an interesting moment. Being told ahead of time just makes me feel like the movie's even slower, because it's going to take Chris and Jeff a long time to reach this conclusion that we've known since they met on the train. And even Chris misses all the points as well. She sees the the worm scar in her in his foot. She's got the exact same scar, but she doesn't pick up on that. And yeah, there's a lot of times where you're just screaming at the screen going, come on, guys, seriously, just, just ask him. <laughs> um, 
But the whole thing about being a drug addict and even the divorce, the divorce, I think, is maybe a lie. I think just because he wanted to tell her something bad, basically, and couldn't tell her the truth. The truth is, maybe not even that he's a drug addict. I'm really not even convinced of that either. Oh, no, I think that it was a reason to explain his loss of days. Right. Okay, okay, okay. For Chris, it was she got meds. She went to a psychiatrist. Oh, you're right. So he's like saying, I must have been a drug addict. That's why I woke up in a motel room with no money. And it's also very possible that he woke up in a motel room where the thief had left him with drugs to give him that impression. True. Yeah. Because in no other way do we see him trying to get drugs. At most, he's maybe an alcoholic because there are scenes where he's drinking. But even then, he doesn't ever really seem out of control. Mm. I think that that's the story that the thief left him with or that he put together. They go back to Chris's place and Jeff's trying to get in there. Yep. And Chris says something along the lines of, I'm really lucky to have my job. I can't lose it. And he's kind of not trying to push too much. He's like, you're lucky to have a signage job. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting, though, I think, because Jeff will say something very similar about his job later on that he is a liability they go in they have a very romantic time mm-hmm. let's say and we do notice at this point like you said before that this is where we see they have the similar leg scars which is just screaming to us but apparently not to them is shortly after this that we see this is the point where as you mentioned before we see their leg scars which we're screaming can't you see that and they Clearly can't for some reason. But then we see them kind of in with the pigs, oh, symbolically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may be a bit much. How how much of this do you need to shove into our face? There it is. There's a connection. We definitely know they're both there. But I think they're trying to set this up because there's a lot that's about to happen with the pigs that represent them. And that's very important. Jeff lives in a hotel. He says it's kind of a benefit based on who his clients are. Oh, Actually, maybe this is a foreshadowing of how Chris is now gaining control. She's maybe got a similar talent to the sampler in that them being in that pig place, she's visiting the she's going back to visit the minds of the pigs, maybe or something like that. It's, it's a, possible. It's a stretch, but it's possible. It's possible, but I think what because otherwise it is so glaringly getting shoved into your face. Like I said, I think that's what that is. But I, I think that what happens next is much more important for that. Because this is where they're in the hotel. They're having food that Chris says isn't very good. That was so funny. <laughs> How is it? What did she say? Is it, is it any good? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's at this point that he is recounting a childhood memory of a vacation. But Chris seems to know it already. She starts to lead with information. And this will come into play later. At this point, it just seems a little awkward. She's asking questions that seem unnatural at this point. Why is she asking these questions? As though she already knows the answer. Jeff invites her to come to this work banquet. But he has to admit to her that his job is less than he let on because she is going to find out that everybody knows about him and his situation. He's paid in cash because he's a liability if they ever have an audit. He basically just manages interns because this is where he admits that he kind of stole before. But after this is where things really start to accelerate because Chris thinks 
she's pregnant because as we find out a visit from a vet to the pig farm, the pig connected to her is pregnant and Chris doesn't understand it. So they give her an MRI where something weird happens and I'm not quite sure exactly how to interpret this. The kind of MRI technician, I think, is speaking with the doctor. They're talking repeatedly about her having had cancer, but that has been removed, but Chris has no memory of cancer. I don't think in any way that she had cancer and the sampler removed it from her, unless they're just referring to the kind of surgery or whatever was left over from the the worm, if somehow the worm caused it to look like she had cancer, but it just doesn't seem in any way that these two things should be connected. I feel the ball was maybe dropped a little bit here because all they could, all they had to say was, oh, there's been massive trauma to your, your womb or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really have to bring up cancer because cancer just makes it confusing. Like you said, it's like, the way that I see it is the worm, you know, a gigantic worm living in your body and being pulled out of you, you know, like a like a, a Godzilla guinea worm would do a hell of a lot of damage to your internal organs and body and stuff, and you'd be lucky to survive. So trauma, yes, but why bother bringing up cancer? Let's just just say you've you've been damaged. You can't have children. The end. I think that would have been much better during the surgery. Jeff clearly is having symptoms of feeling a bit of pain as well. And I think this is where we have the scene where he's drinking a lot of alcohol, but it makes me believe that he's just trying to dull the pain, the physical pain that he can somehow feel because he's connected to her going through it. She's had anesthesia. He has not. And so thus, uh, he's trying to self-medicate because this is the only time that we really see him even remotely look like he's overdoing it. And it's connected to this, which again leads me to not really believe that he was a drug addict. After this, Jeff proposes. We later see them wearing rings, so we can assume that they did get married. And a, a, a substantial amount of time has passed then in that in the scenes that follow, I guess. I believe so, though it doesn't feel like time has passed. No. I think that they maybe rushed through a step there. I think even a quick shot of them at the wedding saying I do and showing, I don't know, calendars passing, you know, calendar months passing, something... Because it just feels like the next day, but now they're wearing rings. There is nothing to kind of indicate something different. I I didn't see a major hairstyle change or anything. At this point, though, they buy a cheap car and they just drive going off feeling. And it's pretty clear that she is feeling stronger than he is. That whole scene, though, as well, with the... Where, I guess, X amount of months have passed. I was starting to think my first... I wouldn't go that far because of... Time hasn't passed that much because the pigs are still going to be babies later. Okay, so... So it, it can't I'd, I'd be, be that long. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I guess... I don't know what the gestation period of the pig is, but... <laughs> it's not that long. We, we are probably talking months at yeah. most here. So this is where they they're starting to try and find where the source of their odd sensations are coming from. I mean, we know that they bought the car because it still has the cheap white numbers on it Mm. from the car lot. They argue, there's a scene where they argue quite a bit over whose memories are whose. I told you about this kid. This kid was my friend. He was my next door neighbor. And it's over and over and over again. And Chris accuses him of trying to steal her memories and make them his. And even on the second viewing, I get a bit confused by this because I don't know 
who is the original memory? Is she thinking it's so much her because she's stronger and pulling those into her mind? Or is she somehow forcing her memories into his and confusing him? Or are they just so connected that they can't see where they separate anymore? Well, I think if you're going to go with the Chris is has some kind of talent or has been left with some kind of talent after her ordeal, then that would be a good... Even both of those situations equal her being more powerful, regardless. Well, I think we're definitely led to believe that later. Is at this point the pigs are taken, the babies are taken, and Jeff and Chris go crazy. Because they're separated as well. Mm. So they are... Jeff starts punching people at random, and Chris is punching like glass in an alleyway and the babies the pig babies are drowned in the river and it's at this point we see white flowers chris is swimming again as we see like the dead babies under the water and we start to see blue come into the water chris starts hearing sounds that jeff can't hear he can hear some of them but not all of them which is again why i think chris is the more powerful one she said yeah i hear the sound you're talking about but i also hear this other one can't you hear it and we see the rotting corpses of the pigs under the water, and they're turning the flowers blue. And then two women come to collect them, and no surprise here, the plants are stamped with E plus P exotics. Okay, the circle is now complete. We know how this circle works. So clearly, at this point, we know that they get the plants, the thief gets the plants to get the maggots, he puts them into people, and then eventually the sampler gets the people, puts the worms into the pigs so he has them, and then if they're babies, the cycle starts over again. At least that's the only way I can see the cycle. That's exactly, yeah. It just, there's no, uh, there's no way to know how it, how it began. Jeff finds Chris swimming, and every time she comes up, she starts quoting a bit of Walton. He's writing it down, she sees it, I don't quite understand at this point, because I feel like they skipped a step. But she just walks in the library and grabs Walden and goes, wow, this is the book. I think that they missed something where she should have typed it into a search engine I was, or asked the librarian. I actually wrote that down. Is like this, is this whole movie set like in 1990? Because there's no Google, you know? It's, <laughs> like Who goes to a library to look up a book? <laughs> I think that would be fine. But how did she know to walk to that book? She walked right to the book and started looking at it. They, they skipped a step somewhere in there. I mean, we could fill in the gaps easily, but... Yeah. Why bother? <laughs> yeah. Then they attempt to... It's a good scene, but it also doesn't quite work for me, where she's swimming, and he starts quoting, and every time she comes up, she's filling in where he left off. I like the idea. It shows what's going on, but at the same time, I just couldn't get over the fact that how is it not going faster in her head while she's swimming? And when she comes up, they're always in exactly the right spot. Isn't that the thing? They're finishing each other's sentences. You know, it's it's a, a tale of romance as well. If you're feeling it that way, that they're so connected and that's how they're doing it. I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one. I think that that's a very plausible thing. But when I'm watching it, I'm just going, nah, there's just no way that every time she comes up, she's perfectly in sync with what he's saying. And at this point, they are only, this is page one. Of the book that they're quoting at this point. So is she able to quote from any point where he starts because she knows it that well? Because that was my other thing was I was given the impression that every time she swam she might be thinking of later things than, you know, like every time she goes to swim 
she gets further in the book in her mind. Yet here we're back at the beginning. Mm. So, I, but I think that's just me being a bit nitpicky. I think it's not really that important. I think the other thing is that the whole, um, like you know, there's more to your brain kind of theory um, as well. Like maybe the thief actually unlocked something in her because when you think about it, now, she's reciting Walden word for word just from copying it one time. As far as we as know. far as we know, yeah. But like you said, with the amount of like you can't survive that long without sleep. You can go without food longer than you can go without sleep for sure. But even if she was awake for a week, like you're you're pushing it. But even the whole him programming her to verbatim tell the conversations that she's been having with people, you know, it's like something is afoot, and maybe that's come with her. And now we and and I guess now we're seeing that she's not in the worm state anymore. This is her real life, and she's still got this ability. Is what that scene also shows, maybe. This is also an important scene because once she's realized this is where it's come from, it starts to unlock a lot of things for her. While she's under the water, she starts to see the flowers to the point where she can almost... I mean, it looks like she's grabbing them, but I think it's more giving the impression that she can almost grab them. She can feel them in a way that the sampler has kind of been experiencing other people's lives. She's now kind of reverse doing this now. She's finding her way to do it. They drive, and this is where they start to see places a sampler has been. Yeah. The kind of telephone pole, the metal tunnel-like tube where he was dropping the rocks. They're following. And they eventually get to essentially his house, where it's like Quinoa Valley Recording Company. They find the CDs, they take them home, they start listening to them. And essentially, Jeff tries, but he, he seems to not do it. Chris is able to use the music to find the sampler. And I think it's likely the first time this has ever happened because he seems, the sampler seems completely taken aback by this. And he seems to be having a heart attack, but then she shoots him. So I'm not sure if he was just totally in shock or if it somehow caused him physical pain for this to happen, but she doesn't mess about. So she shoots him, but I, I was honestly very confused by this because she seems to just be listening and kind of sampling him, but then she's in the physical world with him. So I'm not exactly sure how that works. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I like the scene. I like the whole the whole scene because I just don't really understand it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it because I don't understand it. Yes, that would be you. Because I mean, okay, so basically they're using the or she's now using Jeff's mind to lure the sampler. The sampler enters. She also at this point jumps into Either the sampler's mind or Jeff's mind, probably Jeff's. The sampler sees her, sees that he notices that she notices him, and then yeah, he's like freaked out. He's like, yeah, this is this is uh, what's going on. Yeah, is he having a heart attack? But even the shot in that in that room is like the same as the pig farm where she shoots him. So I don't know if that's happening at the same time. If if she's like just because she's obviously alone in the pig farm because she walks back alone. Mm -hmm. Did she just leave? Did she just get Jeff close enough to attract him, take his mind off of it, and then physically shoot him in the real world while simultaneously visiting him through Jeff's mind in the worm phase? I don't know. And I don't think that we're necessarily meant to know. Yeah. Chris takes the records box so she knows who all the other pigs are tied to. Sends a copy of Walton to all of them. The group takes over the farm. They care nicely for the pigs. They all seem happy. We see the women looking for the flowers. They're only white flowers now. And so that means there's no more drug. The cycle is broken. Chris kisses a pig. That's the end of the movie. Yes. Oh. Um, 
Chris kisses her pink. That's the end of the movie. Well, that is the end of the movie. That's the very end of the movie. But, you know, I think... That's nice, though, because she gets to have her babies. In a way, right? Yeah. I think that that's what they're trying to imply. Oh, this okay. is where I really want to start getting into kind of a, a summation theory. What do we think happens? So for me, one of the most confusing things is how does the thief play into this? Is the thief part of this? And I think he is. He definitely has to be. He's part of that cycle. But did the sampler start it all? Is the thief under his control? Are the plant women... I think they're re referred to as orchid mother and orchid daughter in the credits. Are they also under his control? And will they now be out of the cycle? I don't know why they are so desperate to steal money from so many people. Because even amongst the four of them, if they are getting, I don't even know how much money, Chris had $35,000 in equity, I think, along with all the coins and paintings that they probably sold. If they're getting this much money from this many people, there were a lot of pigs on that farm. How much money do they need? The sampler doesn't seem to need the money. Is he giving the money to the thief? Is, is the thief somehow actually the one who started it? Is he the beginning of the cycle? He was the beginning of the movie. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure how it plays into it. Are the others being mind-controlled in any way? I hadn't thought about that, about the orchid hunters, though. Um, because, yeah, they, they, they go to that spot. They know that's where it grows. I mean, unless they're just like, these are just really rare orchids and we make, we, I mean, the way that I saw it was just, they were hunters, they knew where these really rare blue orchids grew and now they're not growing anymore. Um, and it's the whole title of the movie is Upstream Colour. So it's mm -hmm. like, that's where they find it, that they find it upstream. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything sinister with the orchid hunters, but I could be wrong. I, I didn't even think about the, like they could all be mind control at this point. I didn't even think about that, to be honest. It's possible. It's possible, but it's me filling in the gaps. I'm not sure that there is any definitive thing. But I mean, we do know as well that I don't think they're being controlled because like they can't eat. And after the, after the, the worm is out, they do have a sense of at least some free will. If we're going by your theory, yes, that they need to eat. And sleep. And sleep. And that doing those things will interrupt the worm's effectiveness, then yeah, I agree. If we go by that theory, then clearly they're all aware, they are all part of it. But I think that they they must all be in on it. You're saying the plant women aren't. I think that they must be. I don't think that they would be so shocked to go to that point and find only natural and kind of white flowers at that point. I think they just look bummed out. They're just like, oh, that was like, we got like, used to get 10 grand for that flower. You know, it was, it was our, it was a big, mm. a big product for us. You know, that was the only one that we had, you know, it was really rare and now it's, it's not growing anymore. That's just, that's what I take away from it. The thief shot, he's also very bummed because he's like, oh, well, that's my, that's the end of my uh, mind control business, mm -hmm. which I'm assuming was connected with the, sampler the money part the only thing that i could make heads or tails of with with that is he maybe split the money with the thief and took a cut because maintaining a farm and I'm, I'm not sure his records are flying off the shelf yeah what was he doing obviously yeah i don't know again was he an alien who knows yeah he, that's a big gray area that we'll never know 
I've got no idea. He's got like the the whole third rock from the sun, John Lithgow forehead thing going on. So he could be an alien. It could be related. I don't know that it matters. I... It does to me because this is a really important point because it's like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? How are you doing this? Those are two really important questions that are unanswered. And while I enjoy making up theories, I can't for this one because... Well, I can, but it's like... So there's probably you could fill in that blank with an infinite number of answers. He's God. He's an alien. He's a robot. He's a cyborg from the future. Who knows? Cyborg that likes Mozart and likes to make music. Welcome to my world. <laughs> Whenever you bring up anything and you start filling in the gaps, this is what I'm trying to tell you. That you are putting in information that could be anything. There you go. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I think when I say my ideas, I've got some kind of evidence to back it up. Whereas this movie doesn't necessarily give us anything to go on. And thus, your alien theory, though that's fun... We have no evidence to prove he's an alien. I would say he's human. I think they're all human, a little messed up, that they would do this much control and taking over and stealing from all these people and essentially ruining their lives. Because yeah, we've seen it twice, I assume, a whole, well, actually three times because of that kind of intermission story with the man and the beard, that... Um, yeah, this kind of ruins people's lives. Yeah, and not even the person that's under the, under the control with with the, the 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 husband and wife story. It's like she's the one that kills herself in the end. She's mm-hmm. the one, not even the one that was directly affected by it. So they're pretty awful people. My personal belief is that everybody in the cycle knows what's going on. You don't necessarily believe that. I'm not sure that it really matters though. Overall, I would again say, like, for me, this movie, though I really like it, should be more along the lines of a Black Mirror episode and should only be about 45 minutes long. The artistic side of it, I could understand some people appreciating. It's just not for me. The narrative side of it is a bit ambiguous. And I think for something like a 45 minute episode, that would be much more acceptable when you have an hour and a half to put things together and you don't tie it up a little bit neater than this, then I feel like something is missing. But it's still an interesting concept and definitely something that was unique in many ways to anything else that I've seen. So it was well worth it for that. But will I watch it again? Not not anytime soon. Maybe after you watch Primer, you can watch this one again. <laughs> <laughs> to watch Primer again, to watch this one. No, I don't think that I will. I think it's very interesting that Primer to me felt much more... I think we may be talking about Primer in the future. A movie that is so much more dialogue-driven. Yeah, they're almost opposites. <laughs> this one is so much more kind of artistically driven. Yeah, like you said, it's very kind of opposite... Not really opposites, but opposite kinds of storytelling. Yeah. But I think, I think that's it. I'm not sure that we've really filled in the gaps for anyone on this one, but maybe they're not meant to be filled in. Gaps filled and more gaps created. 